This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa and you can find us on 9625 kilohertz. That is on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. You can also find us on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I am with One Lenzinzi, Amanda Machaga and Tabison Dima. Your top stories. Renegade soldiers in Ivory Coast rejects a proposed deal to end their mutiny over unpaid bonuses. June 3rd will mark the third time in five years that Lesotho hold a general election. In economics, the African Utility Week opens in South Africa's coastal city of Cape Town. And in sports, Roger Federer to miss the French Open and the rest of the clay court season. Here's Ona Lenzinzi. Thank you, Spoo. Lesotho's King Letia III has praised Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe for his wise guidance and astute leadership, which he says says helped bring political stability to the mountain kingdom. Letia is currently on a four-day state visit to Zimbabwe. Speaking at a banquet hosted in his honor by Mugabe at the State House, Letia said Mugabe's guidance and leadership has brought back normality, stability and legitimacy to the mountain kingdom. Lesotho is set to hold its general election on June 3rd. The leaders of a nationwide military mutiny in Cote d'Ivoire have agreed to a government deal to end an army revolt. They've been told they will receive a bonus payment immediately. The troops have been firing in the air and setting up roadblocks around the country since Friday. The BBC's Tamazin Ford reports. These were the men who fought for now President Alassane Ouattara during the civil crisis in 2011, when former President Lohan Bagbo refused to step down. They also occupied the north of the country for nearly 10 years before that. They want to be reintegrated into the army and say they're due around $30,000 in bonuses each. This follows the army mutiny in January, when nearly 9,000 men brought the country to a halt. They were given bonuses to get back to work. Now these former fighters want the same. An Algerian has been put under formal investigation in France on suspicion of aiding deadly Islamist militant attacks in Paris in late 2015. Bilan Chatra is suspected of having acted as a scout for one of the presumed masterminds of the shootings and bombings in Paris in November 2015, in which 130 people were killed. Chatra, who was arrested by authorities in Germany in July 2016 and recently handed over to France, is under investigation on suspicion of complicity in murders linked to terrorism action and of criminal terrorist association. An investigating magistrate will conduct an inquiry to decide whether there is sufficient evidence for him to be sent on trial. 
The Gambia's President Aramaboro has sworn in six new judges to top courts, with Gambians dominating the list in a country that long relied on foreign justices under the former regime. Courts have been long seen as a tool used by former President Ajame to consolidate power. Jailing opposition activists and even members of his own cabinet were a norm under the long-time leader who had been in charge for 22 years. Jame attempted to name new judges to the court in January from Sierra Leone and Nigeria, but none of those nominated arrived for work. Lastly, the White House has denied allegations that President Donald Trump compromised highly classified intelligence about the Islamic State militant group during a meeting with the Russian Foreign Minister last week. National Security Advisor Eshar McMaster says there has there was no mention of sources, methods or military operations. The intelligence appears to relate to the discovery of plans to devise a way of smuggling viable explosive devices on board a plane inside a laptop computer, the BBC's Frank Gardner reports. If you listen very carefully to the wording of the National Security Advisor's denial, he doesn't deny that highly classified information was discussed with the Russians. He just said that nothing was actually revealed about the sources. Now, there is a golden rule in intelligence between governments that when one government passes intelligence to another, it's not passed on to a third country without the source country's approval. And in this case, that doesn't appear to have happened. We don't know what that third country is. Could be Turkey, could be Jordan, could be Israel, could be none of them. But the danger here is to the human informants. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilinsinsi. This is Africa Digest. All right, thank you. On LS1705 Central African Time. Now, leaders of a nationwide military mutiny in Cote d'Ivoire have agreed to a government deal to end an army revolt. They've been told they will receive a bonus payment immediately. The troops have been firing in the air and setting up roadblocks around the country since Friday. President Alassane Ouattara's government has been trying to restore order for four days after about 8,400 mutineers took control of the second biggest city, Bouake, and spread their revolt to cities and towns across the country. Heavy gunfire paralyzed much of Abidjan, the commercial capital in the western port city of San Pedro, echoing another mutiny earlier in the year and further threatening Ivory Coast's emergence from a 2011 civil war as one of the world's fastest growing economies. William Ansavo from the Institute for Security Studies is in Abidjan in Ivory Coast, the Ivory Coast commercial capital and he says the situation on the ground is calm but remains tense. Right now, the situation seems to be uh, to be calm. I mean, it's maybe a bit early to say whether the, the, the crisis is over or, or, or not, but right now, the situation seems to be calm. Are you getting a sense, William, that uh, this conflict might endanger civilian lives? Yes, actually, there have been some uh, people that were that who were wounded. Uh, I think it's the, the, the figure is around 20 people were wounded. Uh, some of them uh, by by bullets. Uh, the other the others were uh, beaten by the the mutineer because they wanted to protest against this this mutiny that is really negatively affecting the life of 
of the noble citizen. So uh, if the situation uh, is not solved uh, rapidly, I think there will be an increasing uh, people who are going to be increasingly angry about the, 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 the mutiny. Has there been any word from the Ivory Coast government as to how it plans to address uh, the soldiers' demands? Actually, yesterday in the evening, the Minister of, of, of Defense uh, made an announcement on, on, on the, the, the TV uh, saying that they, they reached an agreement with the, the mutineers, but he didn't say anything about, he didn't provide, uh, provide the details about what the deal was about. Uh, and after, shortly after, some uh, spokesperson of the mutineers uh, rejected that deal. So right now we are in a, in a kind of uncertainty. We don't know whether there is a deal or, 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 or not. Now Ivory Coast is the world's largest cocoa producer and one of the fastest growing economies here on the continent. What impact do you think this conflict will have on the cocoa industry? I think what we, we observed uh, yesterday that the, the, the price of the, of the cocoa on the international market in, increased, uh, I think, by, by, by 4%. So that's already an immediate consequences we will observe. But overall, I think the situation is going to to, to have a, a negative impact on the prospect of, of growth uh, for, for the economy, for the, in, the foreign investors who are going to be reluctant probably to, 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 to come and invest in, in Cote d'Ivoire and to see whether the, 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 the stability is really there. So I think in, in the short term there will be a, a, a slowdown in the, in the economic uh, activities in, in the country and also in terms of uh, probably investment, foreign investment. Do you think uh, President Alassane Ouattara is losing control of the situation, William? Actually, that's, that's one, one, one question we are asking. We, we don't really know. I mean, over the past, the past days, there have been some, there have been some uh, doubts about the, 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 capa- the capability, the capacity of the government to, to maybe to negotiate, to enter into negotiation with the, with the meeting uh, to find a, a peaceful solution uh, to, to that situation. So right now, with the, 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 the rejection of the, the deal that, were, that was announced yesterday, we are still kind of uh, wondering whether the, the government is really in, in a position to, to find a lasting solution to this crisis. That is William Ansavo, senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies on the line from Abidjan and Ivory Coast, talking to Kumbero Munjarere. June the 3rd, 2017, will mark the third time in five years that Lesotho has held a general election. The election comes on the heels of Prime Minister Pagadi Tamosisidi's losing a no-confidence motion in March in Parliament. Our reporter, Dumelo Zulu, talked to Lesotho's Minister of Trade, Joshua Sitipa, about the state of readiness. Well, I think, as a politician, I wish uh, I had more time to prepare to campaign, but in as far as Speaking as a, as a minister in this government and as the national of this country, we had to go down this route because there was a political stalemate that was uh, brewing. But secondly, we have a constitution and everything that happened was done within the constitution. There was a vote of no confidence in the government and that vote prevailed and the constitution calls for elections. It is 
a very straightforward thing, and I don't think anyone who subscribes to the Constitution would have expected otherwise. Now, are you confident everything will run smoothly? We are very confident. The IEC has, uh, has reassured the public, has reassured government that they have the capacity, they have the resources to run an efficient, well-structured election process. And we, we so far, everything that we've seen speaks to that. We do not anticipate any challenges, of course. It's winter. This weekend we had snow, so it might be cold. It might be a bit chilly, but our people are very excited about this because everybody sees the importance of bringing in about stability, bringing in about uh, an environment that would allow us to focus on what are the key challenges facing this country, Mm. economic development, unemployment, and all the other social implications that arise from high unemployment rates. The fact that our economy is in a, uh, under pressure, the regional economy is under pressure, the global economy is under pressure, and which means that demand for our export is also declining. So we have a whole range of challenges that we would like to focus on. So elections will come, they will bring in stability. We hope they will bring an outcome that will be respected by every other player, and uh, we can be able to move on with the business of securing a brighter future for this country. Now, we know that uh, the SADC facilitator and president of South Africa, Dr. Cyril Ramaphosa, has been hands-on with Lesotho. Are you happy about his involvement with the, with the government there? And in his engagements uh, with, with yourselves there, what are some of the issues that he championed within the country? Well, I think the, the sense that we all have is that the Deputy President has played a very critical role in bringing in a sense of stability. If it wasn't for his inter- intervention, we would not have been able to, to, to have gone to elections in 2015. Remember that it was his intervention through SADAC, as mandated by SADAC, that the former Prime Minister was forced to reopen Parliament, which had been suspended for nine months, just because there had been a vote of no confidence against the government, and the, the decision was that government be prorogued. Pressure was applied to the government then, and parliament was reopened, and we went for elections. And those elections brought about a government that was able to, to bring in stability, to be able to, 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 to begin to work on some of the key issues. Unfortunately, it was a coalition government, and coalition governments are by nature also very unstable. But on top of it, there were challenges and problems within one of the, 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 the parties in the coalition, and that, of course, destabilized and changed the numbers in as far as the government had. So that's why we had to go for elections. All this was done through the Constitution. He's also been very active and very key in helping us move on with our reform process. As you are aware, we have embarked on a very comprehensive reform process that will address our constitutional bottlenecks, that will address our security sector reform process, that will address all our key sectors so that at the end of the day, we have a constitution that reflects the priorities, that reflects the challenges of this day and era. And all that has been with the support and an input of the Deputy President, acting on the mandate of SADAC. He was here last week, as you know, and he was briefed on the process leading to the elections, and I believe that he was satisfied with what the government has done to ensure that we have a free and fair election that will reflect the the will of the people. So we have no challenges. 
That is Lesotho's Minister of Trade, Joshua Setipa, on the line from Lesotho's capital, Maseru, speaking to Dumelo Zulu. Channel Africa is bringing you a new program from Tuesday, the 25th of April. Join us from 900 to 1000 hours Central African time for African Gender Ndaba, a unique program tackling issues of gender injustice, equality and transformation across our continent of Africa. You can catch the program at 900 hours Central African time on Tuesdays or at 200 hours Central African time on Wednesdays and at 300 hours on Saturdays. African Gender Ndaba brought to you by Channel Africa, the African Perspective. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen sixteen Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest with me, Pumela Lezondi, and the channel you're listening to is Channel Africa. The African perspective. South Africa is working towards allowing all African citizens to enter the country without visas, but preference will initially be given to the so-called trusted travelers, such as diplomats, academics, as well as business people and students. The country's Department of Home Affairs outlines the steps that will be taken towards scrapping visa requirements in its latest white paper on international migration, which was adopted by Cabinet six weeks ago. The paper draws strongly on the African Union's Agenda 2063, which led to former AU Commission Chair Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma launching the African passports last year. Channel Africa reporter Kumbero Manjarere. The African Union's Agenda 2063, championed by former AU Commission Chairperson Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma, calls for the scraping of visa requirements for all African citizens traveling on the continent by 2018 based on the views of the African Renaissance. The African passport was launched with great ceremony by Tlamini Zuma and Rwandan President Paul Kagame at last year's African Union Summit in Kigali, Rwanda. According to the White Paper, South Africa fully supports the vision of an Africa where its citizens can move more freely across national borders where intra-Africa trade is encouraged and there is greater integration and development of the African continent. The white paper which moves South Africa's approach to immigration from a purely administrative one to a security based approach warns however that the scraping of visas needs to happen with caution. South Africa will develop a list of countries whose visa adjudication systems are trusted and recognized and technology will then be used to establish trusted traveler schemes. The white paper, which has a strong focus on attracting more skilled migrants to counter the brain drain, also announces a special dispensation for migrants from the Southern African Development Community with the focus on giving visas to skilled migrants, traders, and small and medium-sized business owners. The policy envisages that visas will only be needed when there are risks of foreign nationals overstaying, security risks such as organized crime, terrorism and political instability as well as civil registration risks. It is expected that the new policy will find its way into legislation by next year. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbra Munjalere in Johannesburg. 
Critics have said the African Union Agenda 2063 is too cumbersome and unwieldy to implement. But as it emerged at last night's greet and meet function, Agenda 2063 is not a plan but a vision of what Africa should look like in 50 years. Sydney Katungapiri now looks at part of a 10-year plan to achieve the dream of an Africa we want as outlined by the NAPAD agency. NEPAD Agency, the implementation arm of the African Union, is bent on realizing the dream of the Africa we want by the year 2063. Working earnestly to realize this dream, the agency seeks to develop regional integration. Speaking at a meet and greet function at its head office in Johannesburg, South Africa last night, Ibrahim Mayaki, the chief executive officer at the agency, reiterates the need for governance to drive this dream. Today we are present in 52 African countries from uh, climate change activities to energy, to transport, to fisheries, to biotechnology, uh, to agriculture, well, in all our programs. That footprint in 52 African countries has a unique dimension because we do not intervene in a country if we do not link that national intervention to a regional dimension. So, within the spirit of the founding fathers of of NEPAD in 2001, we highlight the fact that governance is a key and primary issue if we want to transform the continent. Transformation is not only about technical solutions, it is also about political solutions. And that these political solutions are linked to governance issues. Commenting on the way NEPAD implements its projects, Mayaki says there are four approaches to a project. Whatever we do is linked to a continental strategy which has been decided at the African Union level. So we pick the strategy and we go to implement it. Point number two. While we implement a specific strategy, we find gaps in terms of policy design because a strategy is broad and the strategy has not integrated all the different facets and aspects that will be relevant on the ground. So while we move in implementing a strategy, we identify gaps and then we define programs and then we get deeper into the issue. Third thing, the criteria. We tend generally to move to adopt a geographical repartition criteria the best we can. So if we intervene in five, six or seven countries, we try to intervene in three, four, five different regions. Why is it important? Because if we have a success story within a region, we can replicate within the region. Fourth point, the issue of resources. We cannot trigger the implementation of this program in 55 countries at the onset because you would need two to three billion dollars. But what we can do is incubate an experiment, reach solutions, and then frame a policy that then can be replicated in the 55. So this is the approach we have in terms of delivery. Adding on the existing projects, Edina Kalima from the agency's Gender, Climate Change and Agriculture Support Program speaks about a five-country project for women and says women are not to be outdone. We all know that women do so much and uh, while they do so much, they also have challenges. So in this case, we realized what climate change and climate variability 
is doing to the women farmers. So the, the Leopard Agency designed this project to basically support and empower the women smallholder farmers to be able to cope with the adverse climate change effects. And at the same time, this program is basically helping the women farmers by empowering them economically. Uh, this program is in five countries. There is Cameroon, Ethiopia, Malawi, uh, Niger, and Rwanda. And in all these countries, we go and implement this program. It has taken a process. That process has been in phases, but I will not go into detail on that. But at the moment, we are on the implementation stage where we are implementing this project in those five countries. And we are also doing resource mobilization to ensure that the implementation of this program is not halted. The number of women that we are benefiting from this uh, program, it's 170,000 in all those five countries. The budget for this program, the total is tagged at 83 million US dollars. We are implementing and we implement using a staggered approach. As resources are coming, we're starting, we are implementing. We have managed to do operationalize what we call a partnership platform, national partnership platforms in all those five countries. This is a platform where women come together, they share ideas, exchange information, knowledge, best practices. And this is basically to help enhance the implementation of this program. Whether NEPAD's effort to complement the African Union's dream of the Africa we want by 2063 is accepted by all, only the future will tell. Reporting from Johannesburg, I am Sydney Katungapiri. It is 17.25 Central African time. If you want to send us tweets, you can send them to Channel Africa 1 and emails can go to info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. The 17th Annual African Utility Week has started in South Africa's coastal city of Cape Town. An estimated 7,000 decision makers from more than 80 countries are gathering to address challenges, developments and opportunities in the power and water sectors. Apart from nuclear energy, this year the meeting has a strong focus on water utilities. More from Candice Wilson, Associate Director of Power and Utilities South Africa at KPMG. It's quite an exciting week in terms of the utilities throughout Africa. I think there's a lot of focus on providing power to people that haven't previously had power, whether that's through the provision of traditional grids and expansion of the networks, or through mini-grids and other off-grid solutions. A huge focus from the people that are attending seems to be the innovation of new power technologies for Africa. And it's a strong theme that seems to be coming out throughout the tracks and the different people that you speak to. It's really exciting for us from KPMG's perspective as we've been involved in a lot of projects throughout Africa that aren't traditional utility-type projects. And I'd like to see where this innovation actually leads us in the power sector. What are the current uh, trends in terms of shaping the future of the utilities? Everybody that you see to is talking about this energy revolution and where it's going to be taking us. A lot of trends that we're seeing are very much, like I was saying, the off-grid solutions, so the provision of mini-grids and biomass solutions, provision of those solutions that help the communities where they're actually installed in not to provide them with power, but actually to provide them with alternative income sources 
and access to information. That's a huge trend within Africa. If you look at all the development funds that are providing funding into African projects, a lot of them are focused on the social and economic development aspect of the power projects rather than just the provision of power for the sake of providing power. And how is South Africa faring, um, Candice, in terms of the provisions of power in comparison to the rest of the African continent? I think... In my opinion, South Africa is streaks ahead. If you look at ESCOM's and the Department of Energy's targets for actual power provision and the expansion of our grids are far exceeding the other countries, we are probably the highest producer of power in Africa. We do provide power to other African countries. And I do believe that we've actually made significant strides in this department. The IP planning report that the Department of Energy issues every single year and it's been in place and it will be in place until 2025 shows just how rapidly we are actually providing power into communities that haven't actually had it. Our electrification targets are way above any of those that any of the other countries are, have in Africa, although I know that the other, the other countries aim to actually keep up with South Africa. But my honest opinion is that South Africa is really leading in the provision of good power to our communities. Now, Candice, for people who are listening right now who really want to sort of follow uh, the conversation that takes place um, at the Africa Utility Weekend, of course, uh, thereafter, how can they keep in touch in terms of that conversation that will be taking place? Is the website that people can familiarize themselves around what this is all about? Yeah, absolutely. There's obviously the African Utility Week website. There is also massive Twitter following. And also, if you have a look on LinkedIn, key messages are being broadcast, etc., I think from the Twitter aspect, if you read all of the news broadcasts, etc., you get a really nice feel for all the different tracks that are in progress because there's obviously people with different focus here. There's generation transmission, the innovation side of things. There's also the water side. And a lot of people are tweeting out different messages that are coming out of all these presentations. So I would definitely use that as one of the leading media tools. That is Candice Wilson, Associate Director of Power and Utilities South Africa at KPMG, talking to Zekona Meso. Your news headlines with Onelin Zinzi. An Algerian has been put under formal investigation in France on suspicion of aiding deadly Islamist militant attacks in Paris in late 2015. The leaders of a nationwide military mutiny in Côte d'Ivoire have agreed to a government deal to end an army revolt. And Lesotho's King Litsia III has praised Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe for his wise guidance and astute leadership, which he says has helped bring political stability to the mountain kingdom. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, Mu África!
informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen thirty-one Central African Time. The Life After Call campaign, Centre for Environmental Rights, Earth Life Africa, Groundwork, and Greenpeace Africa, welcome the rigorous research undertaken by the Energy Unit of the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research on South Africa's Integrated Resource Plan-based case. Penny Jane Cook, a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace Africa, says the research fails to adequately take into account the health and water cost of existing and new water investment in coal. We really welcome the research because it's provided a much more rational version of the integrated resource plan. What we've seen in terms of the integrated resource plan that our government, our Department of Energy, have put out into the public domain is that it's very lacking in certain aspects, especially around the very high costs associated with health and water impacts of coal, but also more importantly with various factors such as the artificial cap that they've put in place in terms of renewable energy and the fact that it's not realistic in terms of the costs that are associated with nuclear and coal, which means that the government version of our future energy mix is very heavily focused on coal and nuclear. And what we believe as civil society is that they're using the integrated resource plan as a vehicle to push old inappropriate technologies onto the South African public. And what we really need to be seeing is a move away from these technologies and a big investment and a big commitment from government to renewable energy. So what the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research's version of the integrated resource plan does is it shows that we do not require any new investments in coal and nuclear and that all new investments going forward should focus on renewable energy and the just transition to renewable energy needs to be prioritized by government. Don't we have a new investment in coal as it is with some of the plants like Kusile and so forth in South Africa and then what will be the way forward with regards to that? So what we're saying as Greenpeace Africa and as the Life After Coal campaign is that there should be no new investments in coal. So we understand that a lot has already gone into Kusili and Madupi, and we see that those are a foregone conclusion in terms of our energy mix. But what the research, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, really shows is that there's no need for more coal once those coal-fired power stations have been completed. It's debatable if there's actually a need for Kusile even. But in terms of renewable energy and the cost of renewable energy and what is actually possible with that technology, we see that it's really not necessary to invest in the coal through the independent power producers program, that the coal that's currently being proposed through there. So that's the likes of the Tabometsi coal-fired power station that's been in the news a lot lately because of its lack of climate change considerations in terms of that coal-fired power station. So what we're really saying is that all of these new coal-fired power stations that are being proposed by government are not required. And what they really need to do is look at renewable energy as the future for South Africa. And that becomes even more apparent when you consider the water and health impact. And that's what we're really saying in terms of both the Center for the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research and the government's version of the Integrated Resource Plan. Neither of those clearly take into account the health and water impacts that are associated with coal, which means they make coal look a lot more attractive when actually there are very high social and water costs associated with that technology. How has this uh, health impact of coal impacted on uh, human health in South Africa? 
I think what's really clear and what we've seen even from independent researchers is that there is a very high and substantial burden on human health in terms of coal in South Africa. And that's in terms of premature death and increased illness is quite widely felt throughout the South African population. In terms of the total quantifiable economic costs of air pollution from our coal-fired power stations in South Africa, we've seen that this can be in the region of 33 billion rand per year. And the reason that really is so high is because of those health costs that are then borne by the public. So instead of being borne by the generator who's actually polluting the environment, it's borne by the public and more concernedly, it's borne by the most disadvantaged members of society who can least afford to be having these health issues. So it's issues such as early death, chronic bronchitis, you see an increase in hospital admissions for various respiratory and cardiovascular diseases, as well as a number of minor conditions such as that lead to kind of the restriction of your daily activities and loss of productivity. So people can no longer work, can't be as productive as they used to be. And this is particularly seen in people that already have underlying health conditions, as a lot of people living in really poor parts of South Africa are experiencing. What would be the cost of our water situation with regards to the issue that South Africa is a water-scarce area and we're depending on most of this coal-fire-powered station with regards to our energy sources? So I think what's really important to know about coal is that it's a very water-hungry technology. So in terms of all our options going forward, coal is definitely the most impactful in terms of our freshwater resources. And what we're saying in terms of our government is that they're showing a profound disregard for the ongoing water crisis that we're seeing in South Africa. We've all been experiencing the drought. We've seen the huge water issues in the Western Cape. And then we've also seen how that's been affecting our food prices. And once again, those costs are then borne by the poorest of the South African society who can least afford these increases, especially in terms of our staple crops. And that's really seeing the impact of these droughts. So for our government to not take a more serious look at how these technologies impact on our fresh water resources, we think shows gross negligence on the government's behalf. And in terms of the full cost, when you talk about coal-fired power stations around coal mining, the washing of coal to then before you can use it in our power stations. It's around the post-mine impact of acid mine drainage, which we've seen in the news a lot lately, and then acid rain. So what we're saying is that the water consumption costs that have been included in the integrated resource plan, we don't know where the Department of Energy actually got those figures from because they grossly underestimate what the actual costs are to our water resources, which means that you're making coal look far more attractive as an option than it actually is when there are many other technologies, especially in the renewable energy space, that are nowhere near as water-intensive and certainly don't pollute water to the level that coal does. We need to look past just what is happening at a coal-fired power station. If you look at the full value chain in terms of the coal that is used in that energy production, it's massively polluting, and that's a huge problem for our South African water resources. The environmental pollution with regards to this coal-fired generation in South Africa, how is it costing us from an economic and health perspective? So what's really important to know around water pollution is that those costs are externalized to the point where no one's actually dealing with the problem. So it's really hard to come out and say what the cost of that pollution is because all that's happening is that your communities around coal mines and around your coal-fired power stations are just having to live with these polluted water resources where they can no longer use the water for their own purposes. And what's even worse in these situations is a lot of the time coal mines are saying that the water source is fine to use 
but meet that independent testing, we found that there's massive pollution of these water resources and it's no longer actually safe for human consumption. But if you look at an example around acid mine drainage, and for example, the Anglo-American in McLeany Water Reclamation Project, which was trying to deal with the treatment of acid mine water, that cost $1.4 billion in investment capital, and that was just for phase one. It hasn't even looked at phase two to further deal with the problem. So those are the kind of massive costs that we're looking at when it gets to the point where you're actually trying to deal with acid mine drainage. So really, government needs to focus on all of these costs and how they start internalizing these costs into the burning of coal so that we can firstly be dealing with these issues, so that we have healthy water resources for all South Africans, but secondly, so that we're realistically costing technology so that we know which one is actually the best for South Africa. That is Penny Jane Cook, a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace Africa, talking to Wandile Khalipa. The South African Film and Publication Board has called on parents to be vigilant after they were made aware of the online suicide game known as Blue Whale. The apparent suicide game has been linked to at least 113 deaths in Russia and has made news recently with claims that it was heading to South Africa. The South African Depression and Anxiety Group game, uh, SADC, has weighed in on the issue. They are warning parents to be watchful and control their children's access to the internet. More from SEDEX board member Desi Tsoneva. There's a lot of controversy about this new game. There are no current reports of it being active in the country at the moment. It's called a challenge, a game, an app, and they are investigating, as you mentioned, it originating in Russia, but there's no confirmation of all the facts and details around it, around whether those 130 deaths were truly linked to that game or whether it has spread, to which countries it has spread. So from our side, from SEDAG, it's truly just about being aware, whether it's an online game, whether it's cyberbullying, whether it's face-to-face bullying at school or untreated depression, just to be aware that teens can be thinking about suicide, can be going through a lot of emotional turmoil, and to offer support and really just to know that there is someone that can help them. I mean, it's disturbing that games and social media groups have started, you know, sort of sprouting around encouraging um, suicide in young people. How prevalent is this a sort of trend? There are not many reports of that kind of trend, and some international studies or, or, or research is suggesting that um, the gentleman who started the, the Blue Well game was speaking of cleansing society or... Um, kind of almost a natural selection of the strongest, that kind of idea with the blue whale game. But um, this specific game sets challenges, and it's reportedly about 50 of them, increasing in the kind of things you need to do that may be hurtful or dangerous, and the last one being the challenge of committing suicide. But as I said, with regards to this, not very much is known, and there aren't widespread these kinds of applications or games, but there has been a lot of information in the local media about it recently. So it's really just important to know that children may be exposed to these things through online apps, games, networks, websites. They can be exposed to images, they can be exposed to games, they can be exposed to a variety of things, just to be aware and then to have an open communication with them about what they view what their thoughts are on it and what they can do if they're distressed. Now, what are some of the factors that come into play when, uh, you know, kids do feel like participating in games such as this one and the distress that you speak of? What are some of the contributing factors to that? Well, sometimes it targets the teens who are the most vulnerable. So it can be teens who are experiencing a lot of socio, experiencing a lot of socioeconomic stress, 
maybe they already have suicidal thoughts, maybe they have untreated mental illness and things like this, as well as, of course, peer pressure. So if everybody is engaging in some kind of online activity and you feel the pressure to belong, the pressure to not be different, you might engage not because you want to, but because you don't want to be isolated. For a parent who might be a bit concerned after hearing, you know, uh, some of the pointers that you've already given out, how can they get in touch with SADC to sort of get the assistance that they need? They are welcome to contact us on 0800 21 22 23 and that's a toll-free line or they can send an sms to 31393 and one of our counselors will give them a call back we can talk about what is happening currently or anything really if it's concerning them about their teenager it doesn't have to be about this game we're really just passionate about teen suicide awareness and prevention whatever the cause maybe their teenager is behaving differently maybe They seem very, very, so to speak, moody or they have shifts in mood that they don't understand. Maybe they're using substances or they are being isolated in their room. They don't want to come out. They don't want to do the things they used to enjoy. They're creating artwork about death, talking about death, writing about death. Any of those signs, they can call us and speak to one of our counselors and plan a way forward. That is Tezi Tsoneva, a board member at the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, SADAC, speaking to Zikwana Miso. Your economic news now with Amanda Machaka. Good evening. South Africa's Tourism Minister Togozile Kasa says Africa can turn around its economies through tourism. Kasa was speaking at the opening of the Tourism Indaba 2017 conference in Durban. Over 7,000 local and international buyers, exhibitors and media are discussing how to best attract travelers to Africa. Kasa says the Tourism Indaba conference is the perfect platform to showcase pan-African destinations and products. Tourism is contributing about 9% into the GDP. And as we stand, we continue to sustain about 700,000 jobs, direct jobs in the industry. Some are coming to sell our country. Some are coming to buy our products. Some are our partners. South Africa's public protector advocate Mrs. Siwe Mkwebane says she was equally surprised after hearing that Public Enterprise Minister Lynn Brown and the board of ESCOM had reappointed Brian Mulife. The protector, who was speaking in Port Elizabeth in the Eastern Cape province today, says they will wait for the courts to deal with the matter before they can relook the case. Mulife resigned in November last year after a report by the public protector raised questions over cold deals between ESCOM and a company controlled by the Gupta family. When he left, he indicated that uh, for good governance and he would want to clear his name. But I must say to, I've even indicated to South Africans to say, you know, if we can give the court process its time, remember that matter now is sub because once at least it's ventilated in court, then we will know if the court decides that the investigation, it must go back to the public protector. It will give us an opportunity then to investigate further those contracts in ESCOM, get the details, even give the very implicated people an opportunity to give their side of the story. 
Nigerian workers from all from an oil labor union have extended a strike to all majors in protest over the sacking of members from ExxonMobil Corporation. Nigerian labor unions have held a number of strikes in the last few months in protest at the sacking of workers by oil companies. Members of the Petroleum and Natural Gas Senior Staff Association of Nigeria began a strike at ExxonMobil last week. Sihlezuma reports. Pengerson General Secretary Lomumba Ogbara said the union's 10,000 members were taking part in the three-day nationwide strike which began on Monday and would continue until Wednesday. He says production activities are still on and their members on essential duties are working. Only those in administrative duties are not working in the various multinational oil companies since Monday. The strikes are in protest at the sacking of 150 workers in December, of which 82 were Pengerson members. Botswana's government has offered its state-owned BCL mine to the Emirates Investment House for a token price of one billion U.S. dollars in a deal that will result in the Emirati firm taking over the mine's debts since being placed under provisional liquidation in October last year for an initial period of four months. The High Court of Botswana has granted two extensions to BCL as the government negotiated with potential buyers. BCL mine was placed under provisional liquidation after its creditors demanded close to 96 million dollars. And the International Monetary Fund has cut its focus for Uganda's growth for the fiscal year ending next month to between 3.5 and 4% from 5%, blaming drought and slow credit growth. According to the fund, growth would return to around 5% in 2017-2018, assuming weather conditions and credit flows improved. Poor rains have cut harvests and left widespread food shortages across East Africa for more than a year. Uganda's central bank last month trimmed its benchmark rate to 11%, the seventh cut in a row to try to spare faster flow of credit. In your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.26 South African rent, 10.30 Botswana Pula and 9.16 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.77 to the British pound and at 0.91 to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,234 and platinum at $932 per ounce. The price of print crude is at $52.13 a barrel. And that's the latest business news. Thanks, Amanda. It's time for Sports News. Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabison Tema with the latest sports update at this hour. President of the South African Football Association, Denny Jordan, says the country needs to celebrate the success of junior national teams as it celebrates Bafana Bafana. His comments come on the back of the national under-20 team Amajitas 2-1 win over Costa Rica in Suwon on Monday. Both nations used the match as part of preparations for the 2017 FIFA Under-20 World Cup that kicks off on Saturday, 20th of May, and runs until the 11th of June. With only five days left before the start of the tournament, Jordan says the win will come as a confidence booster for the South Africans. The reason why they did not applaud Under-20 is that uh, there is a, a fixation of only one team, and that is Bafana. 
if Bafana had to beat Costa Rica, they would all have applauded. If the under-20 beats Costa Rica, it's a muted celebration. Uh, and I think this is uh, something that we still have to get right in our country, that the junior football is as important as seniors. They represent our future. Roger Federer will miss the French Open and the rest of the clay court season. The 18-time Grand Slam winner says he made the decision in order to play out the ATP World Tour for many years to come. This will be for the second year running that Federer will be missing the French Open. BBC's Russell Phillips has the story. Federer was in such devastating form in the first three months of the year that an eighth Wimbledon title seems very much within his grasp. Trying to win a clay court Grand Slam at the age of nearly 36 without playing any other tournament to prepare would surely have been beyond even him. Instead, he can focus fully on the grass and then turn his attention to the hard courts of the US Open. Federer says scheduling will be the key to his desire to play on tour for many years to come, and he adds he looks forward to returning to Roland Garros next year, although he did say the same 12 months ago. Former Olympic singles gold medalist Mark Rosa from Switzerland says he is not surprised by Federer's decision. It's a half surprise because uh, obviously it was, uh, he didn't play any tournaments on play before, and uh, it was delaying the, the, his announcement, and uh, I mean, you know... The chance for him to win on third at the French Open, they were like quite low, and also you know maybe he took the decision regarding his uh, his physical uh, condition, and uh, you know Roger is the kind of guy that uh, if he goes to a tournament is to win. I mean if he doesn't feel that he has the the, the feeling that he can win the tournament, so I don't see any sense for him to to attend the tournament. I mean I was I was going to to for the Roland Garros, you know, for the Swiss TV, and I was like looking forward to. See Roger, unfortunately, he won't. But uh, I think it's uh, like I said, you know. I think he, he you know, he was uh, thinking, you know, okay, can I win the French Open? Yes or not? And if the answer is no, I think he, he makes the right decision. And wrapping it up with cricket news. Proteas player Fahadin Behadin says the team is confident ahead of the ICC Champions Trophy, which takes place in England next month. Behadin believes the Proteas' successes from the past season will stand them in good stead as they come into the tournament as favourites. We, we won the inaugural Champions Trophy in 1998. People seem to forget that very, very quickly. So, yeah, look, very, very optimistic. We're number one on the other side in the world. We're going as, far as one of the favourites, and I think it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's very proud for me personally. And I think for the team, you know, we've achieved uh, massive feats this particular season. Uh, five five, five yards against Australia, 5 0 against Sri Lanka. We beat New Zealand. Last year, we beat New, uh, in, uh, England at home. Beat, beat India away, you know, leading up to this tournament. So, feeling, feeling, feeling very good. That's a spot at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa for programming, sports and news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Let us recap our top stories. Renegade soldiers in Ivory Coast reject a proposed deal to end their mutiny over unpaid bonuses. 
June 3 will mark the third time in five years that Lesotho holds a general election. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumalelezo, and the producer, Luana Mohamed, and co producers, Professor Mashiko, and the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. Send us emails in for channelafrica.co.za, SMSs plus 27796 Tweet us Channel Africa One. We leave you with a Do Like I Do by DJ Sleek, Questa, and Flubber.